Oasis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an Associate Professor of Management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ilaglobalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Today, I have Dr. Kelly Peterson. At She's in sunny Los Angeles, California. I'm in cloudy Cleveland, Ohio. I wish I was in sunny Los Angeles, California today. Maybe a trip to Venice Beach and do some people watching. Or right? the, 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 oh my gosh, the beautiful museum on the hill that has the beautiful view of the city. The, the Getty. The Getty, yes. <laughs> An afternoon at the Getty would be so much fun. Kelly, I'm going to introduce you really quick formally. And everybody, I want you to meet Dr. Kelly Peterson. She's an industrial psychologist and consultant whose 25 plus year practice includes a wide range of organizational development strategy and design solutions. Her expertise includes leadership development, diversity and inclusion and equity, executive coaching, culture change management, strategic planning, performance assessment, management and organizational effectiveness. She has worked with thousands of leaders and mm-hmm. her, her list of corporate clients it's, it's a who's who, Coca-Cola, Hitachi, UCLA, Walt Disney Company, the Getty. It's incredible. She's an executive coach and she does incredible work. And today uh, we are going to talk about leadership. We're going to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're going to talk about some of these areas of expertise. And Kelly, maybe fill in some blanks. What else do listeners need to know about you? Uh, What do they need to know about me? That I'm absolutely passionate about my work. (laughs) And I feel like in the world of the people side of org change, our time has finally come. (laughs) (laughs) It's exciting to do the work right now. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, talk about that. Talk about that. Mm -hmm. Our time has come. Let's start there. So what are you seeing? The last 18 months has been a whirlwind, obviously, for everyone. It seems like it's elevated a lot of the, I think a lot of the things that, like many people have seen, you don't have to be an academic or a consultant (laughs) to see how things are changing, and specifically in the workplace, in terms of, you know, the war for talent, really top talent, the challenges around creating 
cultures and environments that people can really leverage innovation. Those used to be buzzwords, but the truth is with technology moving so very fast and organizations really needing to adapt to those changes and leverage technology in meaningful ways, our organizations are not really built for facilitating that. Our traditional organizations are just not. And even newer organizations still come in with the same mindset and and mostly around, you know, what we need from leaders. And so nothing elevated that more than COVID. You know, there are obviously very, very, very um, obvious in terms of our political leaders, but it wasn't just the political leaders. Uh, organizational leaders found themselves in it like, uh, oh, my God, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? <laughs> yes. And so what are you seeing? What have you seen? What are some stories you have maybe of some organizations? Obviously, you're not naming names. But organizations who have really adapted, adjusted, navigated it well, uh, all of these different, all of these different shifts, and maybe some areas that some organizations have struggled that you've witnessed. Yeah, well, let me just take a step backward and just also acknowledge that uh, it's not just been the pandemic, the uh, COVID pandemic, you know, that's really elevated these stressors, but also, um, you know, the, the the murder of George Floyd and really the recognition of systemic oppression and the impact that it's having on people's lives, just everyday lives. And then all of a sudden, people are really sharing stories of their experiences in the workplace and how it impacts their ability to really bring their very best to the work that they're doing. So I just wanted to to just add that piece in that because really what this double pandemic revealed, and that's what we call it, the double pandemic, what it revealed is that, you know, we have a lot of inequities, we have a lot of challenges, but we also have a lot of opportunities. What I've been seeing is leaders really sobered by these challenges, really recognizing that hey, maybe there's something going on here that I really either was not present to or maybe not really paying enough attention to in a meaningful way. And the impact that it's having on my workforce and even on my customer base or client base, whatever that may be. So it's been really, really interesting because I started out, uh, I did my first diversity work uh, people always say this. I used to laugh, but now I'm in that place where you're aging yourself in 1997. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I was doing diversity work right before the pandemic. And I just want to say that the way I was doing my work February of 2020 is not the way I'm doing DEI work today. We talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a contextual person. I had to provide context first. So forgive me because I know, Scott, you'd really asked me a question. It's really funny. I had actually lost my way from DEI. Uh, I just gotten so discouraged. And uh, really a while ago, I had determined that maybe this is not for me and maybe my focus would be organizational leadership. And so I've kind of thrown myself and the majority of my work has been in that area, organizational leadership, cultural transformation. 
But right before the pandemic, I actually, I'm going to give a shout out to another consultant, Dr. Stephen Jones. And I was just asked to be a part of a consulting team with him, with a client I already had. Yeah. And he reignited the possibility of what DEI can be for me. So I have to give him a shout out. In this world, there's so much work. We are not competitors. We are really collaborators. So I just wanted to say that. So he really ignited that, you know, you really could have a genuine conversation with people. So right before the pandemic, I had really started getting back into DEI work. And then once it happened, and then the George Floyd situation elevated, and I started to uh, to do conversations on race with a variety of employees in a lot of different organizational settings. I realized that a lot of what's missing from the work are the actual stories and the impact of those stories in the workplace and kind of everyday behavior that maybe we take for granted, things people say and the impact of, of what people say and the kind of environments and cultures that organizations are are making without being intentional about it is actually not only causing a lot of pain, but also interrupting the possibility of real, meaningful innovation change, whatever it is, the the workspace that you're in, in in terms of the products and services you want to deliver. And so I determined that in my practice, a couple of things. One, it was really important for me to bring in great collaborators. So I've worked with some great consultants over the years. And it's like, hey, look, why don't we bring our resources together and start to think about and really explore what could we do differently in this space? How could we make a meaningful difference? And so, you know, I brought some folks together and then I started to decide, Scott, that, you know, I've been around for a long time. I've heard a lot of things. Sometimes as consultants, it's as much of what you don't say as what you do. Yeah, I'm kind of known for being able to say certain things, but I realized... (laughs) You know, I have friends say, you have the nicest way of saying, you know, F you. Does anybody have ever seen in my life? They actually said thank you after you said that. Thank you for that. I really needed that. That was so nice. (laughs) It's a skill. It's a skill set. But, you know, sometimes it could maybe muddle the message. And so I started to really explore just for my own personal journey. What are the things that I'm not saying? that could make a difference in this space? What are the experiences that I could maybe elevate just, you know, as a coach, but also just as a human being, as a consultant, as an employee, you know, what could I elevate in this space? Because I realized that the the real challenge is people just don't see what they don't see. You know, we've been talking about implicit bias before this work began, Uh, I mean, before the pandemic and everybody's talking about it, but I I wondered if we were really getting underneath what's really happening. Because when you're in those discussions and people are talking about their day-to-day experiences, it's very moving. And in some ways it could be almost devastating. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, how can you be at a Fortune 100 company getting paid a great salary, you know, doing amazing work? And literally feel like you're dying on the inside. Yeah. Because what you find, what you learn is the impact of systemic oppression on the individuals 
who are part of so-called marginalized communities means that you have to stuff down a lot of stuff. Yeah. And you know, I'm being polite because we're on air because I really, you know, say another word for the, yes. a lot of caca. So, um, <laughs> you know, you don't realize that you are because you're just doing what you have to do to survive in the work, to thrive in the work, to keep going. Yeah. And, you know, this is true for women. This is true for people of color. This is true for uh, LGBTQ plus individuals. In some places, it could be your religious, whatever it is that, that makes you an other uh, or one of the only ones in the room, you know, it has an impact. So part of our conversation is what would happen if people didn't have to focus on that and they could just focus on contributing? Yeah, they could just focus on bringing their ideas, their thoughts, their experiences, you know, their insights. What would happen if we had that kind of environment? So what we began to do is explore how could we raise this level of awareness around people's experiences and connect it to where the organization is going and the impact that's having on the organization actually getting there, wherever there is. Talk about that, because I imagine once you start hearing those stories, it becomes, it makes explicit all of the barriers, the disengagers, the challenges, or at least more of them that people, their lived experience, that they're, they're carrying with them every day. Yeah, well, you know, I think the first thing is that we made a decision that we wouldn't work with any organization that we couldn't meet with the CEO first. Nice. That's first and foremost, yes. Yeah. So we made that decision early on. Our preference is to meet with the CEO and the entire executive leadership team of an organization. And then we really push to also meet the board because this is a movement that can't be from the bottom up in terms of facilitating meaningful change. It has to be the top down, the bottom up, and it's got to roll around in the middle. That's what I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> The bottom up, wait, the bottom up and it has to roll around in the middle? Yeah, the top down, the bottom up, and then it's got to roll around in the middle because the majority of the work, the majority of the work actually happens in the middle of an organization. That's where you have the most employees and the generating the most work. So it's got to be top down, bottom up, and, you know, really juicy roll around in the middle. So (laughs) the first conversations we have to have are with the leaders. And this is really interesting. So this is where I finally get to your question, Scott. (laughs) What's different? So (laughs) I love it. I have it back there somewhere. (laughs) You did. (laughs) You came all the way back around. (laughs) I came all the way back around. So really, so what what we seek to work with our leaders about is, first of all, what do they feel about this work? Why is this important for them? Why now? And first, we say as individuals, and then second, as leaders of the organization. Because this is not like teaching executive coaching, teaching coaching, or feedback skill or performance management. This is about how you view individuals. This is how you view the environment around you. And the reason why this is important, what you feel about this personally, and then what you feel about it for the organization, is that part of a leader's challenge today is to navigate people through dynamic change. 
And so you are leading people through change. You're leading them. And oftentimes you're not able to use past models or past performance as a roadmap. You actually are building a roadmap. People have to trust you. Like, okay, we're going to go over this cliff and you have to trust that we're going to build the path as we go. And we're going to be able to hold it up and it's going to work. Now, I don't know how that's going to happen, but you're going to have to trust me that this is where we're going. And so who you are matters for people to really entrust you in a way that they want to bring their absolute best to building those systems or designing those new solutions or, you know, incorporating those new innovations in meaningful ways. So I tell them that this is just part of the journey of creating an intentional culture to actually facilitate that. Because you have to be intentional in a way that maybe you didn't have to be in the past. Yes. And it requires design and it requires skillful interventions and in some cases experiments, but are they well thought through experiments that, that are, are again, back to that word intentional. And what are some indicators when you're with an executive, what do you hear out of leaders mouths that make you think, okay, this, this has potential. And what are some things you hear where you think, oh, that's a red flag. What we try to do, we try not to judge any of it. Okay. (laughs) Because uh, we we consider this an evolving journey. I mean, the one thing I'm hearing consistently, which is just being, is executives saying, the one thing we do not want is a one and done. Nice. Like, this is not a check the box. We are, that just seems to be the call of the day. That's employees' biggest fears. And that's one of the first things I have many leaders tell me, that this is not a one and done. That, you know, the other thing we, we do like to hear is, honestly, I don't know where to begin. I think that's great. Yes, because who does, right? Because who does? Exactly, Scott. Because that's exactly what I say, because who does? We're finishing the boat as we leave the harbor. We are. That's exactly what this is. I mean, you know, um, systemic oppression, which actually exists all over the planet, you know, it, it exists everywhere. And, you know, every company culture is impacted by, you know, where it's located and where the people are from and the majority of the workforce. And so the way I like to couch this is, you know, if I'm thinking about one client in in particular, in the U.S., this problem looks one way. In Germany, I I want you to know for a fact that exists and it looks another way. And my favorite thing is, I'm from Canada. I've never heard of this before. We don't have this problem. Uh, Not according to the data. Yeah, yeah, and you know, yes, yes. You very much have a problem with racism in Canada. Yeah, Uh, look at the residential schools and indigenous populations and their experiences, and yeah, it's exactly so. A willingness to recognize that I really don't know where to start, that I don't know uh, what to do, but I know we need to do something. Uh, I had one leader tell me this is a very, very, very successful organization that has continually provided shareholder value to their shareholders. And, you know, the executives, he's like, you know, have all become very wealthy. And he's like, I never expected to be a wealthy person, but it's become extremely wealthy doing the work. And he said, my focus has always been on the numbers. But I realized that 
that's the first half of the company's life. But for the second half of the company's life, I've got to navigate territory that I don't know very well. He said, because, you know, I realized that just focusing on the numbers is not going to facilitate meaningful growth as we scale overseas, as we expand our, our product offering to new market segments that are more diverse, because I realized that I'm, I'm stepping into unknown territory. That's the kind of stuff we like to hear. Because yeah. that means that the leader has really been thinking about it and thinking about how this impacts the business, the workforce, the community around them and kind of what they want to do about it. I'm going to take a breath now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I recorded an episode last summer shortly after George Floyd's murder with a, a woman named Karen Gilliam. She's at mm-hmm. NASA. And we actually did our PhDs together and we've had a relationship for mm-hmm. a long time. and. And that was a really powerful conversation. And it really set me on a path of, of, of trying to learn a lot and really learn. This morning, I'm watching documentaries. Well, in recent weeks, I've watched a lot of documentaries, but I've watched this morning, I watched a documentary called uh, Abla 2 on HBO. And it was Latinx individuals speaking about their experience. I don't know a lot about Latinx culture. I don't know a lot about their history. And so I really committed to setting myself on this path of learning. Is that something else that is, is important that people are, it's not a one and done, but are these individuals expressing to you, look, I need to learn. There's some things I have to learn and I have to better understand. Are you hearing that from some of these leaders as well? Well, that's what we're pushing. You know, I think what happens with leaders, especially executives, you know, many of them are activators. They like to get right into action. Yes. You know, okay, Kelly, what's the first thing that we need to do? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's the first thing we need to do? And, And I always say the first thing we need to do is slow down the conversation. Nice. We have to slow this conversation down because, you know, in the United States, for example, when you're talking about African-Americans or indigenous Native Americans, you know, these are conversations that are hundreds of years in the making. Yeah. You know, and so we're not going to solve them, you know, in a four hour training class. You know, yeah. that's not going to happen. And there's nothing I'm going to tell you in a conversation that's going to change this. So it actually starts with a commitment to learning more. So what we like to do is we like to start out with giving our our leaders a kind of a place to start. And the first place I encourage you to start is to search their own stories. Start with your own story. Start with your own experience. Start with people that you know, and then begin to take that out. One challenge that we have in the United States, for example, as it has to do with race, is that race as a construct really only exists for non-whites. Whites Whites don't really see themselves as white. They don't see, you know, don't really see themselves as a culture, as a culture of behaviors and norms and values that influence others. People of color, whatever that means, the, the, the rest of us see ourselves in racial terms, but whites really don't. And I think what has happened over the last year is it's kind of been a challenge and kind of a reckoning for a white community around really recognizing that the experience outside of them is very, very different. And there's an impact 
that behavior has or that that level of privilege or lack of understanding, there's an impact that that has on others. And so it's a real challenge to be confronted with that. You know, I remember working with one leader who happened to be from Canada. And I remember in our first conversation, him saying, you know, like I went to the university and we, we just had no racial problems, none whatsoever. I would say, I would challenge that that's true. I would say that maybe that's true for you, but not necessarily true for others. And later, um, just in a conversation where I, I heard him sharing about learning, about talking to biracial family members and really being shocked to hear how different their experience was. Like, he was really shocked by that. Yeah. And these are people he really loves and care about. And I don't want to say more because it would... He shared in a public forum. So, but like having those kind of real conversations with people that you care about and really getting a sense of how the experience might be different. And then maybe even begin to explore just your own journey is a great way to start. So as part of our engagements, and I want to tell you, Scott, like these are not the kind of conversations we were having a year and a half ago. That's what I mean. It's different. Yeah. You know, Start with an agenda and talk about an assessments and all that stuff. But I'm saying let's start with an internal assessment first. Yeah. Let's look at your own life, your own thoughts and feelings, because that's going to impact the decisions you make as an executive team. Because right now the executive team is overwhelmingly male and white. I, I don't work with one organization for profit, not for profit, that that's not true. Um, and so, yeah. so you're going to have to challenge because your biases are going to show up as you have the conversations internally, as you set your strategies, it's going to show up. So, so the challenge is going to always be to how do we, how do we mitigate that? How do we, how do we somehow challenge ourselves to move beyond our own perceptions? And I would say it's going to be really difficult to do that unless you have either unless you either have people within the team that are able to elevate those challenges in meaningful ways or you create processes to help you be able to question every decision you make literally question every decision you make and you know leaders are not used to working like that they're used to working really really quickly and yep. incorporating those kind of processes is painful for activators. Well, and it's just challenging thousands of assumptions, tens of thousands of assumptions implicit that they aren't even aware of. That's right. They have no, in some cases, in some cases, maybe, but I love this. I love this notion of, of storytelling. And I love the, the notion of using story as a way to engage and it it humanizes the topic. It, As human beings, stories are a powerful part of our existence, and they personify the experience. And if I know you, and you you share a story with me of an experience you've had that I'm completely unaware of that even exists, right? right? So I was leading a I was leading a session one time, and and there were several female executives in the room, and they said, one one of the women said, "Look." I have to wake up and I spend five, 10 minutes trying to figure out what, what I want to wear because I need to look trendy, but I don't need to look, I can't look suggestive. And that's a thing. And I, I sat there as the facilitator and I said, wow, I didn't know that was, I 
literally my closet, maybe four <laughs> seconds, <laughs> right? <laughs> and on my way. Or, you know, another executive in that session said, look, every other male member of our senior leadership team can fly to China at the drop of a hat because they have stay-at-home spouses. I don't. And that's going to limit. And again, so so how many thousands of things like that exist that we haven't had to confront, we haven't had to be aware of, we aren't aware of, that power of story. And um, I, I think it's I think it's brilliant because it humanizes and it brings people in, right? It de-escalates. And this is my lived reality. This is my experience. I imagine it creates a space and an energy where you can get more work done quickly than unloading a 40 slide PowerPoint deck on, you know, (laughs) cognitive biases. (laughs) Which I'm always happy to do that too. At least start with the stories and get people, you know, oh, wow. That's right. That's right. And in fact, when we talk about biases in the 40 loaded slide, I love that. You know, when we talk about it, we talk about it through stories, through experiences. And what happens in the room is people start to share their own experiences. And And then they have their own recognition, like, oh, my goodness, I never really thought of that 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 was happening to me or that that was happening to that employee or that I, I was holding that bias in that way. And that even though I know it's a bias I have, and I say that I work to, uh, to make sure it doesn't show up. I really can't trust that. It's like, (laughs) you really cannot, you really cannot. So, you know, we really have to have create environments where we are, that we have people that we can trust or build relationships where feedback is reciprocal so that people have permission to tell you that, Hey, you know, you let's go back to that for a second. Let me ask you, when you said that, you know, you're concerned about how this is going to affect her family. Let's go back to that. And let's, I want to know what you meant about that. And because you didn't say about John and I know he has kids too, you know, so let's just, you know, you want to create that kind of environment where you can kind of check each other, but not that in in some kind of, you know, I got you, but really creating those kind of environments and spaces where we can have that kind of dialogue. Cause this is the deal. The genie's out of bottle is not going back in. The other thing is we're working in, you know, the growing diversity, you know, people like you and I have been talking about the workforce shifts for uh, the last 15, 20 years. It's Oh, the workforce is going to skew younger and more diverse. Well, guess what? We're here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And Gen Gen Z is coming into the workforce full force. Are moving into leadership roles at 38 and 39, roughly. I think those are some of the, the front end of millennials. And boomers are going like, really, do I need all this aggravation? Mm. Boomers are actually leaving to either start their own enterprises or commit themselves to nonprofit work or, you know, to set sail on something new and adventurous for them. Uh if they can. So, you know, some people are choosing not to go out. I'm sure you saw it like 40% of people are looking for jobs, are thinking about leaving. 
Yeah, the numbers, I, I've seen all kinds of different numbers from different studies, but whether it's Gallup's engagement numbers, which are always fairly atrocious, or yes, some of the numbers, even I have students right now who, if you don't give me the flexibility of hybrid versus full-time at work versus two, you know, full-time at home, I'm not even looking at you as a job opportunity. So th- the shifts are on a number of fronts, digitization, globalization, social justice, uh, sustainability and environmental concerns. We've got uh, staffing and, and the war for talent, like you mentioned. I mean, there's so many seismic shifts right now that, whew. And so what we like to do is, is we like to say, let's make that one conversation. Yeah. Instead of making them desperate conversations, let's make, because they really are one conversation. Say more about that. Yeah. So, you know, it's really about the world getting smaller, us really having to occupy smaller spaces together and the interdependence, you know, um, Dr. Jean Littman Blooming is my guru. I I love Jean. Uh, She's just, uh, when I read Connective Leadership, she changed my life because I was like, oh my God, somebody, this is is stuff (laughs) like I had in my head, but like, Oh, oh my God. It's like really real. Like, yes, (laughs) this is a thing, (laughs) This is a thing, you know? And and when I studied her in in graduate school and then I had this this crazy friend who's in uh, in my cohort, who's also a personal friend. Like I made him go to graduate school with me. I was like, you know, we're going to do the next four years. We're going to get our doctors. He's like, okay. And (laughs) we're together. Like, I don't want to go by myself. And he's like, he came in with Danny. He said, "Hey, I sent Dr. Jean Lipman Blumen an email, and she responded." I'm like, "What? Oh my gosh!" And then, <laughs> and you know, at some point, I was in, I invited I was invited to her house to meet her, and it was like I felt like you know I, I think I told you earlier, my husband's an actor. Yeah, I felt like I was meeting a movie star. My heart was pounding. <laughs> small it's like oh dr blooming i love your work so much and oh my gosh <laughs> but, um, oh that's great yeah that's great well i had a similar experience like the first leadership book i ever read was kuzas and posner's leadership challenge oh yeah uh-huh. it was that one that really oh wow this is a thing people study i had no clue what's up with this and so right i was interviewing Jim Kuzas for the podcast. Yes, it was a similar experience of Jim, you yes. kind of changed my life. <laughs> you know? Yes, yes. I mean, just changed my life. And, you know, her whole discussion around, you know, the challenges of diversity and interdependence and, you know, how do we bring these two ideas together and and just leadership for this era, how it really has to look different and how, how a leader really has to be able to bring opposing ideas together in a meaningful way so that we can move the initiative, strategy, whatever, culture, whatever that is forward. And I believe she's right. We've had a lot of debates around some of these con- <laughs> concepts. Yeah, I grew to the point that I could debate with her a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. That's awesome. <laughs> but, uh, but to really talk about, like, how do we find that space that's going to move us forward? 
because we're not going back, whatever back is. I had a leader say last year uh, in in July, like, I'll be glad when things get back to normal. I said, you know, that's not going to happen, right? There is no normal. We're not getting back to anything. It's full steam ahead. Right. It's full steam ahead. And so, you know, how do we think in terms of so when I when I talk about it, you know, I was I was meeting with a board earlier this week and they were talking about challenges around what's required around ESG. And and that was part of the context of the conversation around DEI. And I said, you know, they go together. And so you want to start thinking about it's really about creating an environment one that's one part about creating an internal environment where people can be bring their best to the work and enabled in the good way not the bad aa way are enabled to you know elevate ideas and thoughts and you know and they can do it in a way that they feel like themselves you know we're more able to perform when we feel like ourselves when we yep. feel confident and empowered and engaged in meaningful ways so you know there's internal and then there's external the impact that you have on those communities with the products and services you're offering and then you know throughout your entire supply chain like what kind of impact are you having and you know you're looking at an environmental impact but you know, you're also looking at a human impact and only you know why it's important for X company. And this is the key. You have to determine why it's important for you as the leader of the organization, because I don't care what anybody says, your own biases are going to influence decisions and strategy. So first you have to have clarity around what this means for you and then what it means for you as the leader of the organization and the strategy that you all are putting forward. So if you could get yourself to a place where you can see alignment with those things, you're going to move in those directions. If you don't see alignment with those things, if you can't envision the possibility of how this is going to support the organization's goals, mission, whatever it is that you, you know, whatever level you're operating on, you're just not going to move the organization in that in that direction. So first, it has to start with you. Then what happens is as we're having conversations with the people leaders down the organization, we have the same conversation. Because you impact the employee's experience more than the CEO does. The the CEO is impacting the organizational strategy, but the actual experience that the employee is having is with you, supervisor, with you, (laughs) frontline manager. So the culture you create in those many cultures, even if it's just you and one direct report, or you as a project leader of the team, that's going to color their experience. And so we're putting the accountability. We suggest that the accountability happen on every level. It starts with awareness and then desire. This might sound familiar to you. Yeah. And then knowledge, then abilities, then reinforcement, right? Lewin says that if you're going to change a culture, you first have to unfreeze it, right? The hardest thing to do is to unfreeze culture. Yeah. Except in July, March of 2020. <laughs> well, it's those it's those moments in time. I watched another documentary about the four young girls who were killed in the church in Birmingham, Alabama. Right. About two weekends ago. A, a similar moment, at least for whites in the in the history of the United States, maybe 
when they see African-Americans being hosed down in the streets of Birmingham, or they see people being pulled off of chairs in that the John Lewis Good Trouble documentary, it's, it's horrible, horrible footage that all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I can't, I, I can't, it, it, it in a moment shifts perspectives in horrible ways, right? But it, and, and the video of George Floyd is another one of those moments that instantaneously can shift perspectives and, and hopefully take us to new places, better places, more just places, so that, so that everyone can thrive, so that everyone right. has an opportunity to thrive and live into whatever they're here on this planet to become, right? Exactly. And I think what's interesting about that, I I can't help but wonder if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, if it would have had the impact that it did. Wow. Because I think because we were at home, we were in front of our computer screens or our television sets, and we were not commuting and going from here to there and picking up kids from soccer and you know (laughs) you know what I mean you're sitting with it you're sitting with it you kind of forced to sit with it and I think people saw something that they hadn't seen before even though we have video of other people being murdered or injustice in ways that's really hard to challenge even though it's been challenged I think it was a moment in time and because and this is where I say it's all connected right me and my colleagues, we're calling this the great unfreezing mm-hmm. because it's not just our perceptions around what's happening for others, <clears throat> people of color, for example, or, you know, the elevation of the challenge of, of Black trans women or, you know, all of those the intersectionalities and the impacts of people's experiences, but also how we work unfroze, how we interact unfroze. How we how we socialize unfroze, how we buy groceries unfroze. Everything in our daily lives literally unfroze. Yeah. And so now we're in the change phase. And so the opportunities when we come back and we're already getting some of it is whispering, some of it is yelling. Now I've had HR leaders telling me. I, I can't believe that the uh, the CEO is telling me that, you know, we need to put together a strategy to bring everybody back to work. I don't want to come back to the office. You know, yeah. these are heads of HR. Like, yes. I don't want to come back to the office. I had a chief HRO officer say to me, like, Kelly, how am I going to tell X that um, I've moved? <laughs> <laughs> I'm no longer in Albuquerque. I live in. Yeah, I've moved to Texas. I'm not in LA anymore. Like, how am I going to tell him? (laughs) I said, well, I think you should just tell him. And, you know, she told him and he had to go like, because he needs her and she's vital to the organization. He's like, we'll just have to figure it out. But she's like, you know, I want to own a home. I want to, I want a different quality of life. And so, you know, during the pandemic, she and her family moved to Texas and she didn't tell her boss. And she's an executive. <laughs> uh, We're going to have to change. Yeah. Our smart organizations are going to have to change. Well, and to, to, to your point, there's a lot of opportunity there on a number yes, of sure. different dimensions. On a number of different dimensions, there's a lot of opportunity there. 
Because the organizations that, I mean, just for the example of the students that I shared with you a little bit ago, the organizations that are flexible, that really focus more on the results of the employee versus where they're sitting for four hours on a right. Tuesday morning or what time they're sitting there, there's there's greater, I, I had a former student of mine who's in a high-tech firm in Pittsburgh. They just hired someone from Europe to be their chief technology officer. And right. it totally opened up the globe of opportunities of talent, right? right? So there's That's opportunities right. here um, on a number of different dimensions, but I, I really resonate with your approach of storytelling and, and what is your story and why is this important to you? Why is this important? This work important to your organization and having people check in with that I think it's beautiful. I really do. Ultimately, many experiments need to be run, similar to what was happening with COVID, to find a vaccine. Many experiments have to be run to see how we get somewhere new. Yeah. And when it has to do with people, we know that <laughs> that work is a little more challenging. <laughs> Just add humans, right? <laughs> That's right. Just add humans, you know. And, you know, and obviously we're doing we're doing some other other kind of assessment works. We're doing, we put together a tool that we're working on. We're beta testing it and we call it the employee lifecycle assessment where we uh, are assessing, the, uh, assessing those different touch points of an employee lifecycle. So we're looking at your brand, your attraction process, like how are you branding your organization? And then we're looking at your, your obviously recruitment and then hiring, onboarding, performance management, engagement, rewards and recognition, and then exiting. Because at the end of the day, we want to assess, like, who do we attract and why? You know, who is successful here? Why? And why not? Yeah. And who leaves? Why? So you can begin to look at... Um, where in the organization the disconnect happens. And so that's the that's part part of the process work that we're doing with HR practices. And then, you know, we also will supplement those assessments with focus groups and uh, interviews and, and employee surveys, engagement surveys, to see where's the disconnect between these are the processes and practices we have versus this is my experience. Yeah. So that people, um, organizations can be able to assess where are the challenges. That's more typical OD work, but I think the assessment is a little bit different because it's also an engagement tool. It's designed for like an HR group to go through that process together to see where the gaps and holes holes are. And we just presented that at IOLA on Friday. And it was really interesting. Some of the feedback we got from organizations around the challenge of really identifying where the systemic <laughs> the systemic issues lie within the organization. And so obviously that's also a part of the work we're doing, yeah. but I think this, this front end work around awareness and, and that assessment is also part of the awareness space. Like where is there a problem in terms of processes, but the human stuff is the really interesting stuff to really explore and to process people through. It's, it's just really interesting work. Well, I have I have incredible respect, and as we as we wind down for the day, I mm -hmm. always ask guests 
what have you been watching, reading, or streaming? Something that's caught your eye in recent months. It doesn't have anything to do with, it doesn't have to have anything to do with what we've just discussed, but what's catching your eye? What have you been watching? Do I have to really acknowledge this? <laughs> yes. It doesn't have to have anything to do with what we've just discussed. Something that listeners might be interested in. Uh, it's, it's two things I just finished that I really <laughs> have to admit I enjoyed. Okay. One was was High on the Hog on Netflix, which I think is really interesting. And it's really the part of the history of African-American food from, from slavery, from Africa, and the influence that, that Africa had on the American cuisine. Oh, wow. It's really, really interesting. I would say do not watch it if you're hungry. Uh, <laughs> Because it will make you eat. But High on the Hog, I thought was really interesting. And I have to say, I just finished uh, watching Never Have I Ever. It is a total teen show. You know, I've been watching these teen shows and I've been watching them for a couple of reasons. One, I'm really, I'm really interested in just exploring culture, teen culture. I want to know what young people are looking at. I want to know their conversations and um you know, I forget it's the comedian. She's uh, East Indian of East Indian descent. She's the writer and executive producer of the show. And so, you know, I love this point of view of this young middle school East Indian American girl. I just found it delightful. Do not judge me. I don't. I have to be honest with you. The other thing is that I just find that whatever I'm watching has to be light fair because the yeah. work is so intense. Yeah. It is just so intense. And some of my favorite shows I cannot watch right now because they're just, it's just too deep and it's too close to home. So I'm just watching entertainment. So that's what I'm watching. What am I reading right now? I'm pretty much reading everything I possibly can on TEI. <laughs> That's been all my time cruising the internet and, you know, reading, I'm not reading anything in particular right now. And, and in terms of what I am listening to, I'm always listening to This American Life because I just love, I mean, at, at my core, I'll be honest, I, I didn't share this. I'm a storyteller. I write nonfiction and I, I'm really a storyteller. So I love, I love that format, oh. but I'm actually listening to Miles Davis kind of blue. It just, for some reason, that album just ignites my creativity in a way that nothing else does. And uh, when I'm going through a creative period and the work is very creative right now, because yeah. you really are trying to find meaningful creative solutions to things that I find myself really inspired by that music in particular. Well, and it's so wonderful, at least for me, I do a lot of my creative work to music as well. In fact, it actually helps me get into flow. So mm -hmm. it's so wonderful when I can find pieces of music that literally I stop hearing after a couple moments, but I float on. Yes. Sometimes. Yeah. And, that's, and that's what that album does to me. I don't know. I wrote my dissertation to that album. And like I said, over and over again. And I do not know why it does something to the neurons in my brain, but it just works for me. Oh. <laughs> well, Kelly, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank we really, really appreciate it. And thank you for the great work that you do. Say hello to sunny Los Angeles for us. 
And it's really um, beautiful today. Sorry, Scott. It's like oh. gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just imagine myself looking out <laughs> at the Getty, looking out over the city on a clear okay. day. Um, well, thank you so much, Kelly. We appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. You were it was you were a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Things on my mind after my conversation with Kelly. What a wonderful dialogue. Uh, so first, at the very end, we started talking a little bit about what could be considered flow, that she listens to Miles Davis to really get to that point of flow. And I just wanted to acknowledge that Dr. Csikszentmihalyi uh, passed away in the last week. And just uh, incredible work that he did. I will put a couple links in the show notes so that you can check some of that out. And boy, I, I meant what I said. His work totally helped me reframe how I get into those states where I really can be productive. And when it comes to my conversation with Kelly, I very much appreciated her approach to this work. She's focused on new ways to get into the dialogue and this whole notion of really checking into our stories, tapping into that space where we can be aware of our own selves and our own narratives and our own stories. And can that help serve as a launching point for some of this work? And I think that's critical. I think that's absolutely critical. And if we can be doing that at various levels of the organization, we can be more mindful, more intentional, and more aware. Dr. Kelly Peterson, thank you for the good work that you do. And thanks to each of you for checking in and listening. We appreciate it. Be well, take care, and have a wonderful day, everyone. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phronesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phrenesis. If you like Phrenesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, Captovation podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now, Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.